Lesson 2. Believing the Gospel Message About the Kingdom of God Master Texts The God of Heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will break in pieces and consume all these previous kingdoms and it will stand forever. That's in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. Another quotation. In mercy the throne will be established and he, the Messiah, will sit upon it in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment. That's in Isaiah 16, verse 5. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. Jeremiah 3, verse 17. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, the Messiah, and he will reign as king and deal wisely and will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. When Jesus embarked on his intensive evangelistic campaign in Galilee in about 27 AD, he challenged his audience to, quote, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God. See Mark chapter 1, verses 1, 14 and 15. His summons to a radical change of heart was based on the fact that God was one day going to usher in the worldwide kingdom promised by Daniel and all the prophets, the kingdom promised to the descendant of David, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Intelligent belief in that promise of the kingdom is to be the disciples' first step. We are to be prepared for the kingdom ready to enter it when it comes. The nature of Jesus' activity was not like what we today would call preaching a sermon. It was that of a herald making a public announcement on behalf of the one God of Israel. The thrust of the message was that each individual should undertake a radical redirection of his life in face of the certainty of the coming kingdom of God. This was, and still is, the essence of the Christian gospel. How can it be otherwise when it is the gospel message which comes from the lips of Christ himself? Christianity is based on the teaching of the Christ. It is founded upon the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus instructed his followers to take his gospel to all the nations and baptize converts in water. What Jesus requires is that we believe in God's great kingdom program and become part of the, quote, team which announces it wherever we can. To be part of the kingdom program and to be fully in it when it comes means that we believe in faith that God is going to bring the kingdom when Jesus returns. It is a matter of common sense to recognize that by using the term kingdom of God, Jesus would have evoked in the minds of his audience thoughts of a divine worldwide government on earth with its capital at Jerusalem. This is what the kingdom of God would certainly have meant to his contemporaries. The writings of the prophets which Jesus, as a Jew, recognized as the divinely authorized words of God, 
had unanimously promised the arrival of a new era of world peace and prosperity. The book of Daniel is typical. It had spoken of a time coming when, and I quote, the sovereignty and kingship and the splendors of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's in Daniel 7, verse 27, as translated in the Jerusalem Bible. This ideal government, or kingdom, or empire, would rule forever on earth. God's people would be victorious in a renewed earth, and peace would extend across the globe. The fact is that the term kingdom of God unambiguously refers firstly to a divine world government on earth to be introduced as all the prophets had foretold by a supernatural upheaval. The expectation of a new order on earth was the national hope of Israel at the time when Jesus began to preach. That this was so can be demonstrated by examining the writings of the prophets, as well as the literature which followed the closing of the Old Testament canon. Thus, to announce the coming of the kingdom involved both a threat and a promise. To those who responded to the message by believing it and reordering their lives accordingly, there was a promise of gaining a place in the glories of the future divine rule. To the rest, the kingdom would threaten destruction as God executed judgment upon any not found worthy of entering the kingdom when it came. This theme governs the whole New Testament. Jesus promised two destinies, entrance into the kingdom for those who obey Jesus and destruction for those who refuse his gospel of the kingdom message. This theme underlies the whole New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. The Christianity of Jesus was not meant to become obsolete after Jesus left the earth. His half-brother Jude urged people, even at the end of the first century, that they should urgently, quote, contend for the faith once and for all delivered to God's holy people. You'll find that in Jude, verse 3. Barriers to believing the gospel. The association of the kingdom of God with a spectacular divine intervention leading to the establishment of a new world order has proven to be an embarrassment to much of the theology of the past 1600 years. Various techniques have been employed to eliminate from Jesus' teaching this central notion of the kingdom of God as a real government to be imposed upon our world. However, the vision of the prophets, which Jesus came to confirm, as we read in Romans 15 verse 8, is unmistakably clear. And there's ample evidence in the New Testament to show that Jesus shared with his contemporaries the hope for an actual, quote, exterior or concrete kingdom in which he and his followers would enjoy positions of authority. What, for example, could be more explicit than the Savior's promise to the faithful Christians? I quote, To those who prove victorious and keep working for me until the end, I will give the authority over the pagans, which I myself have been given by my Father, to rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like earthenware. Those who prove victorious, I will allow to share my throne, just as I was victorious myself and took my place with my father on his throne. That's a quotation from Revelation chapter 2 verse 26, chapter 3 verse 21, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. These assurances were given to the church as, quote, the message of the Son of God, the faithful and true witness. Revelation 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 14. A true witness, of course, means 
a true gospel preacher. They proceed directly from Jesus to his church. As is well known, they reflect accurately the Jewish and New Testament Christian hope for world dominion under the promised Messiah and his faithful people, just as Daniel had predicted. In the same book of Revelation, we find an angelic chorus singing of the wonders of God's plan. The hymn is in praise of the Messiah, the executive of the divine plan. I quote, You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals of it, because you were sacrificed, and with your blood you bought men for God from every race, language, people, and nation, and made them a line of kings and priests to serve our God and rule the world. That's Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10, as translated by the Jerusalem Bible. The tendency to want to collapse these plain statements and render them less, quote, offensive is widespread, but it must be consciously overcome. In order to make Jesus more, quote, religious and less political, many have tried to think only of a present, quote, reign of the church or a reign of Christ, quote, in the heart. But this is evidently not what these kingdom texts say. The rulership promised to the believers will be granted only after he has become victorious through the trials of the present life. The believer will share the kingdom with Jesus at the future resurrection, just as Jesus gained his position of authority on the Father's throne only at his resurrection. Jesus, too, had to undergo trial and tribulation before God approved him as the future world governor. Commentators on these passages frequently attempt to keep such promises at arm's length. They seem to want to distance themselves from anything so, quote, Jewish, even sometimes labeling these biblical texts as, quote, unchristian or crude. This would mean that Jesus was unchristian and that he was a non-Messianic Messiah. Another way of avoiding this uncomfortable material is to categorize it as, quote, apocalyptic, as to say, describing a catastrophic divine intervention, introducing a new era and a new government on earth. Categorizing this as apocalyptic literature, as though classifying it might make it less offensive. It is indeed Christian apocalyptic, coming to us as the revelation or apocalypse granted to Christ by God as in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This does not mean, however, that it is any less a reflection of the mind of Jesus than any other of his sayings recorded in the New Testament. If to some the promise of, quote, power over the nations seems too political, it may be because the nature of the kingdom of God has not been grasped. What is political is not, therefore, necessarily unspiritual. Nothing could be a greater spiritual blessing than to have Jesus as King of the Kingdom of God functioning in Jerusalem and across the world. Deeply ingrained habits of thought have long caused us to think that things, quote, spiritual are divorced from real political structures functioning on earth. Such thinking is the result of centuries of Greek Platonic thinking. Jesus was not a Platonist, and Paul warned against the extreme dangers of philosophy in Colossians 2 verse 8. The Hebrew outlook which Jesus shared does not, however, operate in those dualistic terms, nor therefore must we, if we wish to be in tune with the historical and risen Jesus. If we try to, quote, spiritualize or allegorize the plain statements of the Bible about the future, we simply dissolve plain information 
and make it mean whatever pleases us. This is the opposite of following the mind and will of God and Jesus. We cannot risk making up our Christianity in terms which seem to us spiritually or politically, quote, correct. Jesus had earlier spoken at the Last Supper of his intention to share rulership with his disciples in the future kingdom. He assured them of a place of honor as ministers of state in a new government. This, in fact, was the essential point of the new covenant. You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has covenanted a kingdom to me, I covenant with you the right to eat and drink with me in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. And the word judge, of course, means in this context, administer or govern. Note that in Hebrew thinking, kings were judges, that's to say, rulers. Precisely the same political reward has been promised to the apostles on an earlier occasion with a special note of the time when the messianic government would come into power. I quote, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his throne of glory, you also will sit on twelve thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's in Matthew 19, verse 28. Formidable barriers have been erected over the centuries against our grasping the fundamental concept presented to us by Jesus in his good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. By removing the kingdom from its biblical context, it has been possible to, quote, reinterpret, which is a sophisticated way of abandoning the original meaning, and replace it with our own more acceptable, quote, kingdom in the hearts of men. Thus, a new version of the gospel of Jesus has replaced his original message. Jesus' name has been added to our, quote, good causes, while the good news about the messianic kingdom, understood as Jesus meant it, has often been discarded by churchgoers and preachers. This tragically has been the history of the development of the central Christian idea, the gospel of the kingdom and the things concerning Jesus, as we read in Acts 8 verse 12 and Acts 28 verses 23 and 31. Out of deference for Jesus as God's Messiah and in obedience to his original challenge to believe in the gospel or good news of the kingdom, Mark 1, 14 and 15, we must insist on defining the kingdom according to its biblical setting. Can intelligent response to the gospel mean anything less? The background to the kingdom of God. The announcement that the kingdom of God was, quote, at hand, Mark 1, 14 and 15, and that men should respond by believing the good news about the kingdom, challenged Jesus' audiences to understand that their national hopes were to be realized. Jesus did not say when the kingdom of God would arrive. The announcement was that it was at hand, and this meant, as it had long before meant in the same words used by the prophets, speaking of the day of the Lord, that men should prepare for its arrival with greatest urgency. After all, any of us might die before the kingdom arrives. The next second to us, after we fall asleep in death, we will face the future kingdom. When we are dead, we have no knowledge of anything. As we read in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 10, including the passage of time, we will awake from the sleep of death at the time of the future resurrection 
as we read in Daniel 12, verse 2, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. The concept of the kingdom of God had a rich history in the recorded messages of the prophets of Israel, whose work Jesus expressly said, he came not to destroy. Matthew 5, verse 17. The announcement of the kingdom by Jesus would call attention to the certain fulfillment of those predictions. The establishment on earth of a divine government presided over by the ideal king of Israel, the Messiah. That Israel was looking forward to an era of world peace under the government of the Messiah cannot reasonably be doubted. The fact is documented in hundreds of standard works on the Bible and the history of the Jewish religion. An expert on the literature of the prophets states what is clear to any who has read their writings. I quote, For many centuries the Jews had believed that someday, in the not distant future, their God, the creator of the universe, would manifest himself and glorify his name and his people Israel in the sight of all mankind. This is the essential substance of the messianic hope. In view of this hope, the attitude of the early Christians can be stated as follows. Quote, Their minds were always filled with a sense of expectancy, a sense of an impending judgment and change of tremendous import in which Jesus would occupy a central and conspicuous position in the capacity of Messiah, and they, as his chosen disciples, would share in his glory. That's from H.G. Hamilton's book, The People of God. Needless to say, the Christian's hopes were directed towards the return of Jesus in power and glory to inaugurate the great era of his kingdom. Another Old Testament scholar notes that the prophet Daniel, and I quote, equates the coming kingdom with the golden age and envisages it as being established here on earth as the final phase of history. That's from D.S. Russell's book, Apocalyptic, Ancient and Modern. The kingdom would mean a restructuring of human society under a divine government operating in a renewed earth. One has only to glance at the subject headings given by the translators of the Jerusalem Bible to catch the flavor of the Old Testament background to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. In the writings of the great prophet Isaiah, we learn of an era of, quote, everlasting peace, Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4, a future restoration, Isaiah 4, verses 4 to 6, the coming of the virtuous king, Isaiah 33, verses 17 to 24, the liberation of Israel, Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7, and the glorious resurrection of Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 60. In Jeremiah, we read of, quote, Zion in the Messianic age, Jeremiah 3, 14 to 18, the conversion of the nations, Jeremiah 16, verses 19 to 21, the future king, Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 8, promises of the recovery of the northern kingdom of Israel in Jeremiah 30, a promise of restoration for Judah in Jeremiah 31, verses 23 to 26, Jerusalem magnificently rebuilt in Jeremiah 31, verses 38 to 40, and finally the institutions of the future in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 26. Ezekiel gives us a description of, quote, Judah and Israel in one kingdom. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. Hosea speaks of, quote, 
the repentance and reconciliation of Israel, a promise of future happiness. In Hosea 14, verses 2 to 9, Joel foresees, quote, the glorious future of Israel. In Joel 4, verses 18 to 21, Amos writes warmly about, quote, prospects of restoration and idyllic prosperity. In Amos 9, verses 11 to 15, Obadiah describes the political triumph of the kingdom of God. In Obadiah, verse 21, compare with that Micah chapter 4, 1 to 5. And finally, Zechariah provides a vivid picture of, quote, messianic salvation, Zechariah 8, 1 to 17, the Messiah in Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10, and the restoration of Israel in Zechariah 9, verses 11 to 17. He concludes with a description of, quote, the splendor of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 21. No one who has pondered this stirring vision of the future can possibly miss its point. With one accord, the prophets of Israel proclaimed that there is coming on earth an era of peace and permanent security for all nations under the supervision of God's chosen agent, the promised son of David. What Irving Zeitlin writes of Isaiah summarizes the Jewish hope of God's kingdom on earth. The prophet looks forward to the end of this era and to ushering in the new era wherein arrogance, oppression, war, and idolatry will all vanish together. Only after Israel has been cleansed of her haughtiness will she truly become God's people and carry his word to the other nations. For out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's a quotation from Seitlin's book, Ancient Judaism. A distinguished Oxford professor of the Old Testament noted in his commentary on Daniel that Isaiah and Micah picture the Messianic age as beginning immediately after the troubles were passed, to which their nation was exposed at the hands of, quote, the Assyrian. As we read in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, see also verses 28 to 34, and Isaiah 30, verses 19 to 26, see also verse 31, and chapter 31, verse 7, and 32, verses 1 to 8. Also then, Isaiah 31, verse 8, and Micah 5, verses 4 to 7. We learn here the identity of the future final enemy of Israel, namely the Assyrian. We must here register our protest against the extraordinary idea that this vision of the future was fulfilled during the historical ministry of Jesus, or before or since. It should be obvious to all that the nations have not beaten their swords into farm instruments and that Jesus, as King Messiah, has not yet visibly taken up his position as ruler of the nations on the restored throne of David. See Luke 1 verse 32 and 33. When did Jesus ever in the past deliver Israel from the Assyrian? See Micah chapter 5 verses 5 to 7. Micah presents a prophecy for the future. The promise of good things to come. The prophet's forecast of a future golden age is so essential to our understanding of the Christian gospel that we must examine the words of the prophets in detail. When Jesus commanded repentance and belief in the good news about the kingdom of God, as in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, his message contained far more than the promise of forgiveness of personal sins. He demanded belief in the God of history and intelligent faith in his plan 
destined to find its climax in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. We are commanded to, quote, repent, that is, change our entire outlook and believe the good news of the kingdom. Believe, that is, in the plan that God is working out for the benefit of us as individuals and for the world through Jesus. An obedient response to the good news about the kingdom obviously entails an understanding of the meaning of the word kingdom. One cannot believe good news about something which one does not understand. What then is this good news? A number of fundamental texts lie behind Jesus' use of the term kingdom of God. On these, the expectation of the kingdom of God is built. We must insist that the good news embraced information about a coming world government with Jesus as its chief executive and how we must respond by preparing ourselves for its arrival. Though terms like government and executive may have negative connotations for us who have witnessed the misuse of authority, nevertheless the biblical promise is of justice and peace on earth under the benign rule of the Messiah. And who does not long for peace and justice in the affairs of men? The kingdom promised to David and his descendant. Of critical importance for Jesus and his audience, and no less for us, was the celebrated promise made to King David that the kingdom of Israel would one day become permanently secure when his distinguished descendant took over the reins of power. This is what you must say to my servant David. I will give you fame as great as the fame of the greatest on earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them there and they will never be disturbed again, nor will the wicked continue to oppress them as they did in the days when I appointed judges over Israel. I will give them rest from all their enemies. Yahweh will make you great. Yahweh will make you a house. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And your house and your kingdom will endure before you forever. Your throne will be established forever. That's from Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 16, about 1000 BC. This remarkable divine oracle provided for David by the prophet Nathan represents a veritable gold mine of information. It contains many of the essential ingredients of New Testament theology relating to the person and work of Jesus. It is indispensable as a guide to Jesus' good news message about the kingdom of God. It's important for us to know how the Jewish people had understood this promise of national glory to be realized in the promised Messiah and his kingdom. Based on the hope of the restored kingdom of David, the following excerpts from the so-called Psalms of Solomon, dating from about 50 years before the birth of Jesus, depict the messianic empire of the future. These Psalms are not themselves part of the official canon of Scripture, they draw their inspiration, however, directly from numerous messianic passages in the Old Testament Psalms and the prophets, and particularly from 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalms 72, Psalms 89, and Psalms 132. I quote, Lord, you chose David to be king over Israel and swore to him, about his descendant forever, that his kingdom should not fail before you. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him 
with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance like an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thought of their heart. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will judge the tribes of the people that have been made holy by the Lord their God. He will not tolerate unrighteousness to pause among them, and any person who knows wickedness will not live with them, for he will know that they are all children of their God. He will distribute them upon the land according to their tribes, and he will have Gentile nations serving under his yoke, and he will glorify the Lord in a place prominent above the whole earth. And he will purge Jerusalem and make it holy as it was even from the beginning, for nations to come from the ends of the earth to see his glory, to bring as gifts her children who had been driven out, and to see the glory of the Lord with which God has glorified her. There will be no unrighteous among them in his, that is the Messiah's, days, for all will be holy and their king will be the Lord Messiah. He will not rely on horse and rider and bow, nor will he collect gold and silver for war, nor will he build up hope in a multitude for a day of war. The Lord himself is his king, the hope of the one who has a strong hope in God. O Lord, your mercy is upon the works of your hands forever. You show your goodness to Israel with a rich gift. Your eyes are watching over them, and none of them will be in need. Your ears listen to the hopeful prayer of the poor. Your compassionate judgments are over the whole world, and your love is for the descendants of Abraham and Israelite. Your discipline for us is as for a firstborn son, an only child, to divert the perceptive person from unintentional sins. May God cleanse Israel for the day of mercy in blessing, for the appointed day when his Messiah will reign. Blessed are those who are born in those days to see the good things of the Lord, which he will do for the coming generation, which will be under the rod of discipline of the Lord Messiah, in the fear of his God, in wisdom of spirit and righteousness and of strength, to direct people in righteous acts in the fear of God, to set them all in the fear of the Lord, a good generation living in the fear of God in the days of mercy. End of quotation from the Psalms of Solomon, number 17 and 18. These Psalms capture the essence of the messianic hope presented by the Old Testament and current at the time when Jesus began to announce the kingdom of God. They show a striking affinity also with passages in Luke's gospel, Luke 1 verse 32, Luke 2 verse 11, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, and chapter 19, verses 15 to 16, and other New Testament texts. The vision of the king and kingdom. A leading exponent of the gospel of the kingdom of God was the 6th century BC prophet Daniel. In a series of remarkable visions, he had predicted that, quote, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. End of quotation from Daniel 2, verse 44. The kingdom of God was destined to replace hostile world empires pictured by the great image of Daniel in chapter 2. According to the prophet, whose message we are challenged to believe, quote, the great God has made known 
to the King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the future. In the Hebrew, we have the words that's to say in messianic times. So the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. That's Daniel 2 verse 45. Along with the promise of the kingdom goes the assurance that it will be ruled by the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, but including his followers who make up the body of Christ, whose, quote, dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. The right to rule was to be conferred on the Son of Man, assisted by his saints, Daniel 7, verse 27, to whom would be given, quote, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve them. Daniel 7, verse 27. See the Revised Standard Version. The bright future is nowhere more vividly depicted than in the words of the prophet Isaiah. His vision is of, and I quote, days to come when the mountain of the temple of Yahweh will tower above the mountains and be lifted higher than the hills. All the nations will stream to it. People without number will come to it and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths since the law will go out from Zion and the oracle of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will wield authority over the nations and adjudicate between many peoples. These will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into sickles. Nation will not lift sword against nation. There will be no more training for war. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. That's from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Translation from the Jerusalem Bible. When that new age dawns, and I quote, those who are left of Zion and remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, and those left in Jerusalem noted down for survival. That's from Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3. Following the cleansing of the temple area, when, quote, the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughter of Zion and cleansed Jerusalem of the blood shed in her, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, and I quote again, Yahweh will come and rest on the whole stretch of Mount Zion and on those who are gathered there, a cloud by day and smoke, and by night the brightness of a flaring fire. For over all the glory of Yahweh will be a canopy and a tent to give shade by day from the heat, refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. The miraculous nature of the predicted kingdom is matched by the supernatural conception of the Messiah. I quote, the maiden will be with child and will give birth to a son whom she shall call Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Matthew sees in the miraculous conception of Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of the oracle delivered by Isaiah 700 years earlier. Of Mary's miraculous pregnancy, he reports simply that, quote, all this took place to fulfill the words spoken by the Lord through the prophet. You'll find that in Matthew 1, verse 22. Quote, the one begotten, meaning brought into existence in her, in Mary that is, is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. Inseparable from the greatness of the future kingdom is the majesty of the promised king. I quote, for there's a child born to us, a son given to us, and dominion is laid on his shoulders, 
and this is the name they give him, Wonder Counselor, Mighty God, which means, according to the standard Hebrew lexicon, Divine Hero. The Messiah was to reflect the very glory of God, his Father. Luke 1, verse 35, gives the basis of this father-son relationship. For there's a child born to us, a son given to us, and dominion is laid on his shoulders. And this is the name they give him, Wonder Counselor, Divine Hero, Father of the Coming Age. So the Greek version of the Hebrew text reads, Prince of Peace, wide is his dominion in a peace that has no end for the throne of David and for his royal power, which he establishes and makes secure in justice and integrity from this time onward and forever. The jealous love of Yahweh, Sabaoth, that's to say the Lord of the armies of heaven, will do this. You read that in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. When the promised national hero of Israel appears, further words of Isaiah find fulfillment. I quote, A shoot springs up from the stock of Jesse, a scion thrusts from his roots. On him the spirit of Yahweh rests, a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and power, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is his breath. He does not judge by appearances. He gives no verdict on hearsay, but judges the wretched with integrity and with equity gives a verdict for the poor of the land. His word is a rod that strikes the ruthless. His sentences bring death to the wicked. Integrity is the loincloth around his waist, faithfulness the belt about his hips. That's in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. Under the just rule of the future king, even nature will reflect a corresponding harmony. I quote, The wolf lies down with the lamb, the panther lies down with the kid. Calf and cub feed together with a little boy to lead them. The cow and the bear make friends, their young lie down together. The lion eats straw like an ox, the infant plays over the cobra's hole, into the viper's lair the young child puts his hand. They do not hurt, nor harm, on all my holy mountain, for the country is filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters swell the sea. That's from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. As in Daniel's vision, the peaceful kingdom will be established on the ruins of former evil governments. I quote, Once the oppression is over, and the destroyer is no more, and those now trampling the country underfoot have gone away, the throne will be made secure in gentleness, and on it there will sit in all fidelity within the tent of David, a judge careful for justice and eager for integrity. That's in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5. The triumph of the kingdom will mean the banishment of all hostile forces. I quote, That day Yahweh will punish above the armies of the sky, below the kings of the earth, and they will be herded together, shut up in a dungeon, confined in a prison, and after long years punished. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. At that point, the glorious kingdom will appear. I quote, The moon will hide her face, the sun will be ashamed, for Yahweh Sabaoth, that's to say the Lord of the armies of heaven, will be king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Quotation from Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23. The time will come for the fulfillment of God's great plan for the earth. I quote, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. And each will be like a refuge from the wind, and a shelter from the storm. 
like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. That's Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. With this complex of ideas providing the indispensable background of Jesus' watchword, the kingdom of God, we are in a position to react with understanding to his first recorded command. Quote, repent and believe the good news about the kingdom of God. That's in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. The Christian hope as an essential part of the gospel. Upon his arrival in Galilee, Jesus launched his campaign on behalf of the good news about the kingdom of God. His use of the familiar term, kingdom of God, stimulated hopes for peace on earth based on all the prophets had said. Jesus presented himself as the ultimate, quote, theocrat, the one who for the first time could guarantee world peace and prosperity. If the phrase kingdom of God has ceased to have definite meaning for many, perhaps we should substitute, quote, future divine messianic government on earth. We should substitute that phrase for this is the concept underlying the entire mission of Jesus. The idea does not originate with Jesus. Rather, he came, quote, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That's a quotation from Romans 15, verse 8. As the one appointed to rule in the kingdom, he continues to summon the public to respond to the good news in advance of the arrival of the kingdom. The present is a time of urgent preparation for the dawning of the kingdom. We must learn to live in a manner fitting our call to the kingdom. The invitation to respond intelligently to the good news continues to go out as the church faithfully obeys her commission to, quote, proclaim this good news about the kingdom in the whole world. Matthew 24, verse 14. When the world has been fairly warned, the end of the age will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. Only then will the new age of the divine kingdom on earth be introduced. In a world saturated with gospels, so-called, claiming the name of Christ, it is urgently necessary to insist on the fact that the genuine Christian gospel, the one proclaimed by Jesus himself, is the gospel of the kingdom. Our Christian documents yield that fact above all others. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Another quotation. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the reason for which I was sent. That's a quotation from Luke chapter 4 verse 43. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. The same gospel yesterday, today, until the kingdom comes. Theology, so-called, has devised a number of techniques for avoiding the obvious. Strangely, as we saw in lesson one, it has dropped the all-important phrase, gospel of the kingdom. It has substituted a gospel which speaks only of the death and resurrection of Jesus and not of his kingdom. It has attempted this by sidestepping the definitive evidence of Matthew, Mark, and Luke relating to Jesus' ceaseless preaching of the kingdom, as found in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, and so on, long before he said a word about his death and resurrection. See Luke, chapter 18, verses 29 to 34, for that death and resurrection. It has also bypassed the explicit information given by Luke in the book of Acts, describing the activity of the church 
after the resurrection of Jesus. Luke makes every effort to prevent us from ever forgetting that intelligent belief in the kingdom of God gospel is the first step towards embracing biblical Christianity. I quote, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. That's from Acts chapter 8, verse 12. This is Luke's deliberately chosen formula for describing the content of the message of salvation. He repeats it at crucial junctures in his narrative, Acts 1, 3 and verse 6, Acts 19, 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. He even reserves it for his final word about the Christian mission under Paul in Rome. Paul was, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That's in Acts 28, verse 31. Not only does the Savior receive here his full official title, the Lord Jesus Messiah, his own gospel of the kingdom is given official recognition as the message now going to Gentiles. It is exactly the same message which some of the Jews had rejected when Paul had, quote, expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. That's in Acts 28, verse 23. Not surprisingly, the message of the kingdom is none other than the one always proclaimed by Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, defines the message of salvation as the gospel originally announced by Jesus himself. And Romans 16, verse 25, equates Paul's gospel with the same gospel as heralded by Jesus. Can anyone resist the conclusion that the kingdom of God is the primary ingredient, in addition, of course, to the things concerning Jesus, his death and resurrection, in the gospel, according to the Bible? The gospel of the kingdom is the principal concern of Jesus throughout his ministry, and it is the customary message of the Spirit-filled Christians in Acts, who authorized baptism as Jesus had insisted. Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Only when their audience has professed faith in the good news or gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Messiah. Acts 8, 12, 19, 8, and Acts 28, 23, and 31. It is a remarkable fact that churches no longer use the apostolic formula of faith required of candidates for baptism. That is Acts 8, verse 12. That of belief in the gospel of the kingdom of God and the things concerning the name of Jesus. Compare Acts chapter 8, verses 23 and 31. Would not the use of this early so-called creed, with its primary emphasis on the kingdom, help to ensure that Jesus' own Christian gospel would never be forgotten? In lesson three, we will pursue our examination of the meaning of the kingdom of God from its background in the prophets. This will enable us to understand the message of Jesus in its biblical environment and ward off all attempts to uproot it from its heritage in Old Testament prophecy. At all costs, the gospel message must be defended against the many substitute messages by which it is constantly threatened. The gospel of Jesus is certainly not the gospel of consumerism, nor is it the gospel of heaven as a place for disembodied souls. Jesus' teaching 
is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. That's a quotation from Professor Robinson in his book, Regnum Dei, the Bampton Lectures of 1901.